You say with me, I receive the word tonight. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And uh, I was talking to somebody this week and um, heard of a, uh, I don't know, they were, not very many churches are teaching the word of God. And you know, that just produces anemic Christians because God said, you will not live by bread alone. You won't stay alive by bread alone. Life is more than stuff. Life is more than things. But you shall live by every single solitary word that proceeds out of God's mouth. And now the book of Romans, we've been looking at it, and we're in, I'm doing a chapter a week. Some of you didn't think I could do that. I didn't either, but I'm doing it. And uh, tonight we're going to look at chapter 6 because, you know, this is really just good old theology. And we ought not be afraid of that word, theology, because theology is teaching you and I um, what God did for us in Jesus Christ. It's very, very important that we understand theology, the teaching of the Word. Now, last time in chapter 5, Paul the Apostle laid out the benefits of what's, what's the million-dollar word? Justification. What does justification mean? Not guilty. Acquitted. Declared righteous. So, uh, he was talking about the benefits that flow out of justification. Then he went into how God uses suffering in building character. He doesn't send all suffering, but he'll use it. He will use it. Sometimes you bring it on yourself. How many of you have ever done that? Sometimes you bring suffering on yourself. Sometimes other people bring suffering on you. Uh, suffering comes for many reasons. But here's what God has said. No matter how it comes or why it comes, I'm going to use it. God never wastes a pain. He never wastes a pain. And then uh, Paul went into the superiority of the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, as opposed to the first Adam, who blew it. How many of you want to kick the first Adam in the shins when you get to heaven? Thanks a lot, Adam. Now, in chapter 6, here we go. We're going to do chapter 6 tonight, and Paul begins explaining how those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ are to walk out their new relationship with God. Now here's the subject of chapter 6. It is growth into spiritual maturity. That's covered in chapters 6 through 8. So for three weeks now, we're going to be looking at spiritual growth. How many of you want to grow spiritually? All right, you want to grow into maturity? And, and what, is the, the, uh, what is the benefit of maturity? Well, you're not tossed to and fro anymore. You are solid like a rock. You're rooted deep. The Bible says, not like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the cunning craftiness of men, tossed round back and forth like the waves of the sea. That's not how we're to live. We're not supposed to be in roller coaster Christianity, but we're supposed to be in stable, rooted, fruitful Christianity. And so that's where we're going. So he's going to get real practical tonight, but it's still theological. Now, this process of spiritual growth is called what, everybody? Say it with me. Sanctification. That's the process of spiritual growth. Now, watch this carefully. Sanctification. Here's what it is. It's the lifelong process of transformation into the likeness of Christ. You haven't arrived. I haven't arrived. I don't care if you've been a believer 50 years. You have not arrived. You will only arrive when you arrive to heaven. Until then, we're in a process. 
The process is spiritual growth. And man, I, I, I wish I could jump into chapter 7 tonight because I was digging into chapter 7 today and there's so much good stuff that has to do with this, but I'm going to have to wait. I'm going to make you wait too. Watch this now. Sanctification. Now, here's where your testimony begins. Your testimony begins, it began with justification. It proceeds with sanctification. And it ends in glorification. Your Christian life began when you said, Jesus, forgive me and come into my heart. And God looked down and you were washed in the blood and God said, justified. And when God said justified, he was saying, you are now righteous. He made Jesus, who never knew a sin, to become sin for us on the cross, that we might be made, declared the righteousness of God in Christ. Very important. So in time, right when you said, Jesus, forgive me, God said justified, and your Christian life began with justification. All right, now look at this. Justification is the gift that happens at the moment of our conversion to Christ. But sanctification is a process. Now listen carefully. Some things are gifts and some things are processes that take place through time until the day that you die. Justification was a gift. I declare you righteous. But sanctification is a daily, monthly, yearly process whereby God matures you, sets you apart from the world, bears fruit in you, and glorifies himself in your life. That's, that's sanctification. All right? But it doesn't stop there. Glorification is the result of the return of Christ and the glorification of our earthly bodies to be like his. It does not yet appear what we shall be, John said, but we do know this. When he shall appear, we shall be like him. Why? For we shall see him as he is. 1 John 4, 1. All right? When he appears, if you're still alive, you're going up. But before you go up, those who have died in Christ, gone to sleep in Christ, are coming out of the grave first. And it doesn't matter if they've been in there 2,000 years and their bodies are ashes. Or if they were cremated and their bodies are ashes. God has no problem with that. God spoke something out of nothing, ex nihilo. So if he can speak something out of nothing, he has no problem with your ashes. All right? Not any. Because you're, you're, you're going to receive, at that moment, a glorified body. And what will it be like? Just like his. And I can't wait for that. That's going to be so much fun because Jesus could walk right through a wall. I mean, he created all of the, the principles of physics. He created relativity. He created gravity. He created atomic structure and molecular structure. He created all of that. And so for him to suspend natural law is totally his decision and totally he's totally able and capable to do it he made it so if he says i'm going to suspend natural law and i'm going to walk through a wall and then when i get to the other side i'm going to eat fish and it's going to stay in me that's my call 
because he's the Lord, the creator. Through him, God made everything we see and feel and taste and touch and smell. Now, we're going to receive the same kind of glorified body. It will never be able to get sick. It will never age. You will not have to resort to max factor. You won't have to go to curves. You'll never have to diet again. Somebody say amen. amen. Because it'll be a glorified body. So it begins with justification. It continues through life in sanctification. And it ends in glorification. It will be a glorified body. What a, what a day that's going to be. Amen? And I'm going to tell you, soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. And it's going to happen. Now, dead to sin and alive to Christ. We're about to get heavy now. This is about to get a little bit deep. So everybody grab the size of your chair and say, deep. Here we go. Because here goes verses 1 through 14, chapter 6. In verse 1, Paul again deals with false teachers who claimed that we should keep on sinning that God's grace may abound. How absurd. Look what he says in verse 1. Uh, chapter 6, what shall we say then, writes Paul, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? There have been teachers out there saying, well, uh, if grace came because of sin, then let's sin all the more so we'll have that much more grace. And Paul basically said, you're crazy, you're loony, and let me fix you right now. So it goes on. Of course, this is absurd. Paul next strikes a death blow to such an argument with a huge truth. Now here we go with a huge truth. He said, by no means. We, read this with me everybody, good and loud like you're preaching. We died to sin. Now stop a minute. Is he speaking metaphorically? Allegorically? Symbolically? Is he just waxing a little bit poetic? No. He means what he says, says what he means. So what's he saying? We died to sin. Now, then he asks a question. That being true, how can we live in it any longer? How can we live? Now, when he says live in it, let me be clear, because everybody in here is going to sin. Anybody sinned yet this year? I want to be sure. Anybody lied yet? That, no, no, I'm not going to ask particulars. But how many of you have had to repent just lately the rest of you come down right now we're gonna have an altar call for lying now watch this now we died to sin he said how can you live in it any longer the word live there means practice it how shall we continue to live lives that are practicing known sin now that's where he draws the line how can we practice it any longer? And, and, of course, it's a rhetorical question. You shouldn't. You can, but you shouldn't. I mean, you can go do it if you want to, but you shouldn't. And, he, and here's his message. You don't have to. Why? Because you're dead to it. And this is where theology matters. Now, notice the same Greek word translated into died, dead to sin, died, is found in John eleven twenty one. 21. So let's look at what he meant by died. 
Therefore Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have what? Was Lazarus dead? Yeah, because she said, if you roll away that stone, he stinketh. Rigor mortis has set in. He's dead. As dead as dead can be. And Jesus raised him from the dead, but he was dead. That same word, same word for dead, is used when he said, you are dead. Dead to sin. So this is not figurative speech. Paul is saying you, as a Christian, have died totally to sin. That is, to living, practicing a sinful lifestyle. Nothing can be more unresponsive than a dead person. If you're dead, a corpse can't be commanded. It can't be kicked. It can't be made to respond in any way. Why? Because it's dead. Likewise, God reckons the believer to be just that dead to the promptings, to the reigning or the ruling of sin in their life. You're dead to it. Sin shall no longer have dominion, rulership, reign over you. Why? Because you're dead to it. Now, in a minute, we're going to learn to say, I reckon. You thought that was Texan. It's not. It's Romans. <laughs> Watch this. Paul compares the Christian's death to sin. We're having water baptism this Sunday. This ought to stir a lot of you up to get water baptized real quick. Because if you haven't been water baptized, you're disobeying the Lord. You better get water baptized. We'll be doing it this Sunday. We're going to leave a lot of dead bodies in that baptistry. A lot of dead old men. A lot of dead old men. All right? Now, he compares your, your death to sin to water baptism. Look what he says in verses 3 to 4. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore, what everyone buried with him through baptism into his death that's the way we do water baptism when we put you down into the water we make you recite the lord's prayer i just want to see if y'all were even listening we, we put you down here's what we say i buried with him by baptism into his death raised to walk in the newness of life so what, it's, a, it's a symbol, it's a picture, but it's a picture of you leaving your old life, old man, old ways in the water as Jesus was in the grave. And when he came out of the grave, resurrected, you come out of the water, resurrected to live a new life. It's very important. Now, he says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death. The word baptism is used elsewhere in the Greek language just to show you what the word, it, it's baptizo is the word. And here's uh, the idea. It's used in the Greek language of a blacksmith who dips a piece of hot iron into water uh, to temper it. You know, you've seen an iron go in there and sizzles and, and uh, it goes all the way in. That's the idea. It's totally immersed in the water. And then again, Greek soldiers placing the points of their swords in a bowl of blood before a battle 
it means total immersion. And that matters greatly as we go on tonight, so you understand that. It's not being sprinkled. What the word baptizo means totally immersed in. Okay? Now, the Greek word for baptism, right there, baptizo, is the act of placing a person or a thing into a new environment or into union with someone else so as to alter its relationship to its previous environment or condition. It's very powerful. Now watch. So the believer has been placed into a living, vital union with Christ and into a totally new environment, the kingdom of God. You got removed from darkness and placed into his marvelous light. You got removed from the kingdom of, Sa of Satan and placed into the kingdom of God's dear son. You got removed from death and into life. Now, instead of living according to the rules of the kingdom of this world, we live according to the rules and principles and truths of the kingdom of God. Listen carefully. The kingdom of heaven is a place. But the kingdom of God is a condition. Well, what do you mean, Pastor Jeff? Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. Well, what do you mean? The Bible says the kingdom of God is not meat and it's not drink, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's a condition. The kingdom of God is the condition in which we live while we're on this earth. The kingdom of heaven is the final destination. And it's a place. Okay, now... So we have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear son, the kingdom of God. We are the children of God. We are a new species of being. Okay? In fact, every born-again child of God has experienced three baptisms. Did you know that? Let me show you what they were. Water baptism, we just talked about that. Water baptism is the act of obedience that baptizes us into who? Into Christ. It, we, are, we are recognizing or, or identifying with him, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So when you get water baptized, you are being baptized into Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Galatians 3.27 says, for instance, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now that's talking about water baptism. So we got baptized into Christ, but now... Look at Romans 6, 4, and 5. It's so powerful. We were buried, therefore, with him by the baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, so we too, everybody say, me too, might habitually live and behave in newness of life. Here's what he's saying. The same power that got Jesus up from the grave has has changed you on the inside when you became born again and now resides within you and raised you up to walk in newness of life. The same power. That's what it says. So we have been raised from the spiritual dead. You were dead, but now you're alive in Him. Now, 
when baptized in water, here's what we're doing. We're identifying, uh, identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and we're pro- uh, proclaiming to the world that we have died to sin. And it's very, very powerful when you come out of that water because you're saying, I am dead to that old life. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God. And that's all there is to it. Testifying to the world that just as God raised Jesus from the dead never to die again, so we are being raised from the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life. Amen. Now, water baptism conveys to the world a change within the believer that is as radical as Jesus' death and resurrection. Was his resurrection radical? Oh, yeah. But your resurrection from the dead was also radical. And what has happened to you is radical. It was not a New Year's resolution, and it was not a um, uh, some kind of... Uh, self-betterment program it was not rehab it was being transformed by the power of god all right the second baptism we all experience is baptism into the holy spirit look what the bible says speaking of jesus john the baptist pointed to him and said the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the holy spirit remember what baptism means totally immersed in So Jesus didn't come to give you goosebumps or to barely touch you every once in a while with the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told his disciples, he said, don't you leave Jerusalem and start preaching yet, but you wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me talk about. And look what he said. John baptized you in water. What did he do? He totally immersed you in water. But in a few days, I'm going to totally immerse you with the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit fell, they didn't get a little touch here and there. They got drenched in the Holy Spirit. They got filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And we ought not be afraid of that. That's what he came to do. On the day of Pentecost, the 120 believers, Mary, Mother Mary included, in the upper room were totally immersed in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Now the third baptism for every child of God is baptism into the body of Christ, the church. We were baptized into Christ, we were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and we were baptized into the body of Christ, the church. Can I inform you that when Jesus looks at his church, he doesn't see Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, Pentecostal, Assembly of God, Charismatic. He doesn't see any of that. He sees one great big blood-washed church. That's what he sees. There is no distinction. And I don't think he likes one above the other. If you're blood-washed and you're a child of God, you're his. And, and there, Listen, nobody's any better than anybody else. And as soon as you think you've got a corner on God... He'll let you know that you really don't. All right? Baptism into the body of Christ, the church. Look at this now. For we were all baptized by one Spirit. So who baptized us into the body of Christ? The Spirit. Look, we were all baptized by one what? Spirit. The Holy Ghost baptized us into one. How many bodies? One. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, black, white, yellow, red, old young rich poor it doesn't matter and we were all given the one spirit to drink 
So as soon as you get baptized in the Spirit and baptized into Christ, the Holy Spirit then has baptized you into the body of Christ, the church. So we're all members of the same one body. Different names, but one body. All right. Through our identification with Christ in water baptism, God has broken sin stronghold in our lives. Now this is where you've got to pay top-notch attention. Watch this now. Paul says, knowing this, do you know this? Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. What in the world does that mean? Why was the old man crucified with him? That the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer, say it with me, be slaves of sin. So, man, whatever this verse means, it is really important. So let's look at it for a minute. In every unsaved person, there's only one nature, his fallen nature what he inherited from Adam. Every single person born is born with a fallen nature, born in sin, shaped in iniquity, inheritors of Adam's fallen nature, every one of us. So we don't have to be taught to sin, we have to be taught not to sin. Okay? Now, but in every Christian, there are two natures. His fallen nature, which was judicially put to death when Christ died. Very important. And his new regenerate nature, which was secured for him by Jesus' resurrection. Verily, verily, I say to you, you must be born from above. Born once you're dead, born twice you're alive, born once you're lost, born twice you're saved, born once you're going to hell, born twice you're going to heaven. You've got to be born again. If you're never born again, you've got that fallen nature and you will meet God in your sins. The fallen nature in the Bible is called the old man and occurs elsewhere in Ephesians 4.22 and Colossians 3.9. Several places you read about the old man. I was in a meeting one time in my early days. I've told you this before, but it's a funny story. So, I mean, a lot of you know George and Jerry Teske are good friends that own the Blue Barn Christian Retreat Center, but in the Jesus movement in the 70s. Man, everybody was, we witnessed everything that moved and we were all excited about the Lord Jesus as I am still today and we ought to be. But we were in this little house meeting and George and Jerry had just come out of the Baptist church. He had been a functioning <clears throat> alcoholic. He had been in the Billy Graham choir singing Just As I Am with a flask of vodka in his lapel pocket. Just As I Am, without one plea, excuse me, gloop. But that's your seriously that was him but then he had an experience with the holy spirit well so he started checking out the jesus movement and going into houses where you know all of us kids were meeting and so i i received a prophecy and the prophecy had to do with the old man and i was prophesying about the old man being dirty and we needed to crucify the old man he turned to his wife and said would you listen to the way he's talking about his dad I'm serious. He thought I was sitting there just going on a terror, on a tangent, running my dad down. I said, no, George, George, I was talking about the old man. Now, what does the old man mean? It means the man of the old 
corrupt human nature. The inborn tendency towards evil that is in every single person. Feel that pull to do something wrong? That's the old man. That's that Adamic nature. So when you read old man in the Bible, that's what it's talking about. The old man. Now, say with me positionally. Now watch this now. Positionally. In the reckoning of God, the old man is crucified with Christ. The old sinful nature. When Jesus was dying on the cross, only God can do this. But God, you know the old song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes. You and I were there. Well, what was there? That old sinful nature was crucified with him. Well, how did he do that? I don't need to figure that out any more than I need to know how my toaster works. I get toast no matter if I understand it. I don't know how a microwave works, but I use it every day. I don't know how God did that, but he did it. But it's very important we understand this, church. If you don't get this, you're not going to live in victory. I'm serious. Watch this now. The old man is crucified with Christ, and the believer is exhorted to make this good in experience, reckoning it to be so by doing what? You're told to put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the sinful lusts, and put on the new man. Well, I've preached on that. That put off, put on is like you put on a jacket, put on a shirt. You literally, you, you decide I'm going to put something on or I'm going to take something off. That's the, that's the verbiage. So we are to, that old nature, when you're tempted, really I think you ought to do it before you walk out the door in the morning, I put off my old man. I just take off that old man. I lay that old man down and I put on the new man. Now, i got to describe or explain two kinds of truth in Scripture so you'll get this. The Bible presents two levels of truth to every believer. Very important here. Positional and experiential. Here they are. What do I mean? Here's positional. Positional truth is that which God has accomplished for us once for all in Christ. In God's mind, something is done. Period. In cement, case settled, never to be undone. That's positional truth. It's what he did for us. It's a position that we're in because God did it. Experiential truth is that truth which is worked out experientially in our life while alive on earth. It's very simple. You know, I, I experienced experiential truth today. I, I prayed. I got peace from God. I, I was in the Word. I got blessed by the Word. I experienced the promises of God. It was experiential. It was truth that became a living experience for me. It is what we actually experience living in time and space. Now, let me give you an instance here. The Bible declares in Ephesians 2, 6 that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you right now where you are right here? Are you seated with Christ in heavenly places? But wait a minute. Is that where your body is? 
No. But when God looks at you, He reckons it done. As far as God's concerned, this whole thing's already wrapped up and we're already with Him. Are y'all with me now? So when God looks at you and me, He says, well, they're, all, they're saved. They're seated in heavenly place in Christ Jesus. They're already in heaven. It's a done deal. It's only a matter of time for time and events to catch up with what I reckon to be true. That's it. Okay? So positionally, God says it's true, but experientially, we're not there yet. We will experience it, but positionally God says you're there. Here's another example. Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Who he called, he also justified. Who he justified, he also glorified. But watch this. The first three, predestined, called, and justified, have already happened to everybody in this room. Were you called? Everybody say amen. amen. Did he predestine you? Say amen. amen. And let me ask you, have you been justified? But have you been glorified yet? That's still future. Yet God positionally reckons it already done. In God's eyes, you're already walking around with a glorified body, walking through walls. I don't know if we're going to really do that, but I hope to be able to do it at least once. <laughs> but you, you get what I'm saying. The first three have been done, we have experienced them. But experientially, I have not yet experienced the glorified body. And neither have you. But God says it's already done. Now, Paul is instructing us by the Holy Spirit to lay hold of the positional truth. That our old man was crucified with Christ. When God looks at you and me, he says, you're crucified with Christ. I consider it done. Well, what am I to do with that? I have to say, well, I reckon I hope y'all get this tonight. God says, you, your old man was crucified with Christ. What am I to do with that? Because I don't feel crucified sometimes. Do you? Come on. Even in rush hour traffic today, you weren't crucified. <laughs> I know going to the youth thing last night, a one-hour journey that took two hours, we weren't feeling real crucified. The whole, we weren't singing hallelujah, kumbaya in that traffic. We had to make up our mind. Well, there's nothing we can do about it. I trust God's sovereignty. What are we going to do? He knew we were going to hit this traffic. Might as well enjoy it. And might as well praise Him and not get uptight about it. But now watch. God says, your old man and all the habits and all the sin and all the lifestyle that went with him are crucified. That means he can't get, get down. He was crucified. And what are we to do with that? We're to say, I reckon it's so. Death by crucifixion could never be self-inflicted. You can't crucify yourself. Somebody else has to do the crucifying. At Calvary, God has dealt with the question of self as well as the question of sin by himself putting us to death with Christ. Wow. Y'all, this is just mind-blowing stuff. I hope you're getting this. Some of you, you had a long day already. I'm just, and this is just, you're overdosing in your mind on this. But listen carefully now. 
It's this simple. God says it's done, so you say, I reckon that it's done, so I am going to appropriate by faith what He tells me positionally is done. So your old man hanging on the cross says, why don't you go do this and this and this that you used to do? And you just look at him and say, you can't come down because you're crucified. And I didn't do it. My God crucified you. But it gets better. God has also broken sin's stranglehold on our life. Well, is that really true? You need to say, I reckon. Watch this, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Why? So the body of sin might be destroyed that we should no longer serve sin. Well, what is the body of sin? The body of sin refers to the instrument for carrying out sin's orders, which is your body. Your eyes, your ears, your speech, your feet, your hands, everything. The old man inside of you had a vessel to use, your body. And, the, and he calls it the body of sin. The old man says, do it. And the body of sin carries it out. But what did God do? He said, I crucified the old man and I destroyed the body of sin. Boy, we, I could have a Holy Ghost fit right here on this, right here. This is why Christianity is so superior to any other philosophy in the entire world. And why Jesus is not just our Savior, He's our teacher. And we need to be taught this, folks. Because now the old man's crucified. The body of sin doesn't have to carry anything out. Now, obviously, the body does not feel dead to sin. Does your body feel dead to sin? No, your body tempts you to do sin. But that is where positional truth comes in. God says, it is dead. Well, let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true and every impulse a liar. We are to reckon the body of sin to be destroyed and the old man to be crucified. As salvation does not depend on how we feel, neither does our day-to-day walk. We are to walk by faith, not by sight. In the Christian life, feelings are secondary to truth. If you go out of your feelings, you're dead. It's over with. Forget it. You're going to live a miserable life because your feelings will lie to you all day long. The Christian philosophy, the Christian teaching is truth is my guide. You will know the truth and it will set you free. Not your emotions and they will set you free. You will know the truth and it will make you free. And he who the Son frees is free indeed. So feelings are secondary to truth every, every single time. I don't care how you feel. If it's against the Word of God, truth rules, feelings die. Now watch. If God says it's true positionally, then by faith we're to walk in it experientially. That's what Romans 6 is telling us. If God says it's true positionally, you're dead, the body of sin is destroyed, then we are to walk in that experientially by faith. We're to put that truth on. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now next, Paul comes to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death 
no longer has dominion over him. Now here's another huge truth. The fact that death has no more dominion over Christ Jesus is the cornerstone for Paul's argument that sin has no more dominion over us. Is Jesus risen from the dead? Well, we had a good Easter. He must be. You're raised from the dead, so he must be raised from the dead. All right, if that's true, then Paul says, for that reason, because he's risen from the dead, that is the bottom line cornerstone of my case to you that sin will not have dominion over you. You do not have to live a sinful lifestyle anymore. Okay? Now, he said, if we are to enjoy victory over sin, we've got to fully embrace the victory of Jesus over the grave. In defeating sin, we are to appropriate the victory of Jesus over the grave. Okay? So, likewise you also, say it with me, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God through Jesus our Lord. Now let me tell you, there's a huge difference between know and reckon. i got to tell you what reckon means. It's one thing to know something, yet quite another to reckon something. The word reckon is an accounting term, meaning to count, to take into account, to compute. Reckon. What do you mean? Just as God considers something done, we also are to count reckon it count it done to reckon it to be a fact of life all right that's bigger than no see i can be standing at niagara falls and have a steel cable going from me all the way across those falls the other side and there could be a man with a wheelbarrow who can look at me and say i have crossed this many times hop in I've crossed many times. No big deal. Hop in. Now, I can know. That is, I can believe he's telling me the truth. I can say I do. And I can know he's standing there telling me he's done it many times. But the difference between know and reckon is getting in or standing there. Okay? When I really believe it, I will reckon it so and I'll get in. And a cross will go. So, are you really dead to sin? It's, well, yeah, I know that's true. Do you really know that's true? How about reckoning it true? So you get out of uh, any kind of sinful lifestyle, you just go ahead and you get in Jesus' wheelbarrow of grace and let him carry you on a cross. You reckon it so. Now we come to a therefore. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, that body of sin. Don't present your members as instruments of sin, your eyes, your ears, your speech, your hands, your feet, anything. Don't present your members as instruments of sin. Okay? What does he say? But present yourselves to God as being what, everyone? Alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In light of the positional fact that our old man was crucified with Christ and we have reckoned that that to be a done deal, therefore don't allow the various members of your body to obey sin's 
promptings because you no longer have to obey the old man anymore. The three magnificent words of chapter 6 are know, reckon, and yield. I got to know something before I can reckon it, and I got to reckon it before I can really yield. Once we know what God has done for us on the cross, we reckon it to be so. But once we reckon it to be so, we've got to yield our bodies and lives to Him as those alive from the dead. That's why Romans 12 says, Present therefore your bodies living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Well, see, you can't present your body a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God if you have not known and reckoned what He's told us. All right, I know my old man's crucified. I reckon it to be so. So I present my body to God for his glory to the day that I die. For sin, verse 14, shall not have dominion over you. You are not under law, but under grace. That's what we're talking about next week. Great stuff next week. Why do I do what I don't want to do? That's next week. Continued victory does not depend on self-effort, but on drawing from God's grace. Now, slaves to righteousness, we're going to zip right through this real quickly. For the rest of the chapter, Paul focuses on the reality that everybody is a slave. Can I tell you, everybody is a slave. The Bible tells us we're either a slave of sin unto death, or we're a slave of righteousness unto life. No person is their own person. Well, I'm just my own man, my own woman. I'm going to do what I want. I'm an independent person. No, you're not. You are so deceived. If you're not under God's lordship, you are a slave, friend, to sin and sin's impulses. Nobody is their own person. I know that pops some of your bubbles because you like to think, I'm going to do what I want, go where I want, do my own thing, man. Travel to the beat of my own drummer. But no, you're not. You're a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. What then? Shall we sin because we're, we're uh, not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves a slave to obey? You are that one's slaves whom you obey. Whoever you present yourself to, whatever force, you're going to become that forces, that, that one's slave that's where addiction comes in when you first started smoking it was your choice now you're a slave when you first snorted that cocaine it was your choice now you're a slave when you first looked at pornography it was your choice now and until jesus sets you free to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey you are that one's slaves whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. See, it works both ways. Present yourself to Jesus, you become his slave. And he'll set you free. Amen? But God be thanked that though you were, everybody say were, you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became what, everyone? Slaves of righteousness. Say with me, I'm a slave of righteousness because he has set me free. Give him a hand of praise tonight. That's really true. Now, I speak in human terms, he says, because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members 
as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have to worry about righteousness. It was nowhere in your life. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? Bad fruit. For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin, amen, and having become slaves of God, amen, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Now he closes, and we're going to stand, stand with me, and we're going to close with this, uh, with a universal, undeniable fact of life. I want you to read this fact of life with me, would you? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now see what we're doing next time? When you do what you don't want to do. Father, thank you that you have set us free. Thank you for this incredible truth, the positional, experiential truth. Positionally, we are in Christ, seated in heavenly places, and have been set free, and the old man crucified, and the body of sin destroyed. And so, Lord, we appropriate that truth into our experiential life, and we walk in that truth. We don't have to live a life of sin. Thank you, Lord. I want you to take a minute, church, and thank God for the incredible thing he did for us when Jesus died on that cross. When Jesus died on that cross, you were there, I was there. And we were crucified with him. And we were raised from the dead with him. Thank you, Lord.